is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So you might have thought that we would have ended this short series that we're doing, The Road to the Resurrection. You might have thought, well, that ended last week, right? Because after all, Jesus arose. Um, But it's not. I'm going to finish that series this morning. I've got one more message on the road to the resurrection. And I want to say that the road to the resurrection leads us to building the kingdom. So I would suggest to you that the road to the resurrection doesn't end with the resurrection but that the resurrection is sort of like a beginning. It's a starting point, if you would. It's an origination of certain things. And so what I'd like to do this morning for just a few moments is I'd like to share with you three accomplishments that the resurrection of Jesus initiated. So three, three, the road to the resurrection led to the resurrection, but it doesn't stop there. It actually initiates, if you would, Three, three metaphorical roads for us today. And uh, I want to challenge us with those this morning. The first one is this. It establishes, the, re- the resurrection of Jesus establishes for us our confidence. Here's Peter's words, 1 Peter chapter 1. We looked at this not too long ago. Blessed be, this is verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. And I call that a living confidence, but a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead birthed in us this living hope, this this, um, extreme confidence, if you would, that we have a future inheritance with the Lord, that the Lord is keeping. He's got it in heaven where no one's going to steal it. No one's going to take it. He's keeping it for us in his kingdom. And what is that confidence? What is this hope that the resurrection birthed? Well, I think it's the same hope that Jesus had when he entrusted himself to God to vindicate him from the cross. So in Peter, Peter tells us that Jesus entrusted himself to the Father to vindicate him. And what was the vindication of Jesus? Remember, he's on the cross, and they're hurling abuse at him. And they're, they're saying all kinds of bad things about him, and they're, they're disbelieving, etc. The vindication of Jesus was his resurrection from the dead. So Jesus was entrusting himself to the Father to vindicate him, that is to raise him from the dead. And I want to suggest to you that that is also our confidence. That is our hope. And that hope is that one day, just like just like Jesus entrusted himself to the Father, we're entrusting ourselves to God too, that one day he's going to raise us up from the dead. I love Saturdays because Saturdays is normally a day I get to work in the yard. And I never would have thought I'd be a yard worker, but I like working in the yard. Makes me feel like a little farmer, Micah. So, uh, you know, uh, not really. But uh, I do like working in the yard. But, you know, while I'm working, I'm I'm listening to something. So yesterday, I listened to a debate with a guy who was debating and claiming that 
The resurrection from the dead that God has given to us is spiritual. And that there is no bodily resurrection for us. He made the statement that Jesus was raised bodily in this debate, but we shall not be raised bodily. We were raised by our faith spiritually so that when we die, which dying is a good thing, when we die, we're loosed of this mortal body and we go off to heaven and, and we live. He, he believes all the prophecies of the Bible have been fulfilled and, and there is no resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul argued with people just like this 2,000 years ago. Here's what Paul says to them in his letter to the Corinthians. He said, if there is no resurrection of the dead, meaning if there is no resurrection for us from the dead, then even Messiah has not been raised. And if Messiah has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is our faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 13, and 14. In other words, he says this, if there isn't a resurrection from the dead, then your faith is pointless. If Christianity isn't about God raising us from the dead in the future, then I believe what Paul is saying, then we might as well just, hey, we don't exist after that. And we really, it really doesn't matter how you live or what you believe. In verse 19, he says, if only for this life we have hope in Messiah, we are to be pitied more than all people. If in the future there is no resurrection for us, the Apostle Paul says, you might as well focus your life on living your best life now. That sound familiar? You might as well live your best life now and your happiest life now if there is no res resurrection. In verse 32, he says, if there is no resurrection, why have I put my life in peril all these times? I might as well uh, eat, drink, for tomorrow I die. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Somebody yesterday texted me, a dear friend of mine texted me, he says, you know, you really focus on the resurrection. That must be your, your focus of, of study these days. And I tell you what, I thought about that all night long. Because, you know, the resurrection really isn't the focus of my study. It's not. But the resurrection has become the focus of my confidence. The resurrection has become the focus of my hope. And the resurrection of Jesus is what gives me that hope of resurrection and of eternal life. We get in the resurrection immortality. The Bible says that this mortal will be taken and it'll be put away. And what will be it'll be replaced with immortality. Because the, the, the corrupting life that I'm living or the body that I live in, the person that I am, it gets sown in the ground, right? But what comes out of the ground at the resurrection, of, excuse me, at the return of Jesus is going to be immortality. And that's become our hope. And let me go back to the first Peter verse. He says, because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. I tell you, I, I, I felt so sad for the guy debating, believing that or missing God's whole point. That one day he's going to raise us back into a world that he fixes and, and, and recreates. And, and it's going to be paradise. And we get to be with him forever. Now here's the second thing, the road to the resurrection. The resurrection inaugurates. It inaugurates his church. It inaugurates his, his people. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. 
So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Messiah Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, talking about the first covenant, so that he might create in himself one new man from two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access into one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which Messiah Jesus himself as the cornerstone in him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Now, Paul doesn't actually mention the resurrection in that passage, but it's implied by his death and his subsequent resurrection, Jesus inaugurates a new covenant. Now, under the old covenant, God set apart Abraham's descendants. Remember this? He chose one guy, Abraham, and he said, Abraham, out of you, I'm going I'm to make a great and distinct nation. It didn't take all of Abraham's descendants. He would pick and choose. It would be first this one, right? And then it would be, let's see, Isaac. And then it would be Jacob. It wasn't all the descendants of Abraham, but he picked some descendants. And he said, I'm going to make out of you a, a special nation. Now, under the new covenant, inaugurated by the death and resurrection of Jesus, God set aside the old covenant and began something new. Let me substantiate that. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 8, it says the old covenant has become obsolete and is passing away. The new covenant that he created, he called it the ecclesia, the, the called out ones, the assembly. So with the resurrection of Jesus, God inaugurates several changes. Let's go back through the text and let me note them for you or let me note them with you. Here's the first one. He made both of those groups, the descendants of Abraham that he made a distinct nation. He made both of those groups, that one and everyone else, he made them into one group. Verse 14, for he is our peace who made both groups one tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made no effect the law consisting of commands expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. So he took these two distinct groups and now he made them one. He made us into one body, verse 16. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. The Bible says, using body as a metaphor, says that he made us, both the descendants of Abraham and everyone else, he made us into one body. One, the metaphor is one body. God uses that metaphor of body. It talks about how the body of Christ is one and how we're all members of it. And we're all different. We have different gifts and different abilities. 
You know, I appreciate the, the Morgans and the Fountains. They're going to bring gifts that they have to our body. He brings us with different, bo- with different gifts. We're one body. He uses that metaphor here. He says he gave us all one spirit. And through the one spirit, we all come to God and call him Father. Verse 18. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. He made us into one kingdom, verse 19. I mean, these are all metaphors talking about what God inaugurated with the resurrection of Jesus. He made us into one kingdom. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints. We are one. We're we're, we're not foreigners. We're, We're one kingdom. We're the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God. He goes on, he made us into one family. In verse 19, members of God's household. And this, as I, as I say often, this is my favorite metaphor for who we are. We are family, one with another. And then this last one can't be ignored and can't be misunderstood. We've got to see this. He made us to be the temple of God. Look at verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles, New Testament, and the prophets, Old Testament, with Messiah Jesus himself as the cornerstone in the middle. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. God destroyed the temple in AD 70, everyone. In fact, he put an end to the sacrificial system. He put an end to the first covenant. And, and I, I think he punctuated it really strongly. Now, I've made this statement before, and I stand by it. I, don't th- I predict, and of course, I'll be dead. You'll never be able to prove it. But I predict that the temple will never, ever, ever be rebuilt. No, no, some of you disagree with me and you think it will be rebuilt. I don't believe the temple, the Old Testament temple, will ever be rebuilt because God has built a new temple. And the new temple that he's built is not made with brick and mortar, but it's made with us living stones. So Peter would say it this way, as you come to him, 1 Peter 2, 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house are being built into a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Under the first covenant, the Old Testament housed the presence of God. The kind of glory came into the Old Testament building. Paul says in Ephesians, he says, you are being built into this dwelling place for the Spirit of God. Paul understood this too. 2 Corinthians, he writes to the church there in Corinth. 2 Corinthians 6.15, what agreement does Messiah have with Belial? I guess that's the Baals. Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we, for we are the temple of the living God. So the the resurrection of Jesus, it, it not only just establishes our confidence and our hope in the future of what God's going to do. And I know we disagree exactly how it's going to pan out, but that's all right. It's our confidence that one day he's going to raise us from the dead and we will live with him forever in immortality. And it inaugurated his church. And here's the third thing that I want to share with you. There's probably more things that the resurrection of Jesus inaugurates or initiates. But, but here's the third one I want you to see. It, it launches the great commission. 
It launches what God desires us to do. So in Matthew's account of the resurrection, the ladies see Jesus at the tomb. And in Matthew's account, he, he kind of condenses everything and he says, tell, go back and tell the disciples I'm going to see them in Galilee. And then here's how Matthew ends his, his treatise of the life of Jesus. In verse 16, he says, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. And Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus launches the mission. He launches his directive. He launches his task for the church. And here it is. We're to go throughout all the world. And we are, every people group. Because it says pantata ethne. So it's really meaning every ethnic group. Not nations as we divide them, you know, today. But every people group of the world. We're to go and we're to make disciples of Jesus from every people group. Now, I know this is just, this is just re- refresher, but a disciple is a learner. A disciple is a follower of someone else. So Jesus is sending his followers, his disciples, into the world with this directive that they're to make followers of Jesus everywhere. In another place, he tells us, start at home and then spread out and then go to the ends of the earth. So let's just say that instead of Palestine, it had been Surrey County that was at the center of the work of God and Jesus, right? And he lived here, right? So he would say to us, hey guys, start right here in Surrey and Isle of Wight. And then spread out into the Commonwealth. And then go to the whole nation. And then eventually go to the whole world. So we start where we are and we, we spread out. Uh, and we spread out from there. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us, Jesus doesn't tell us in Matthew's gospel, how are we to do that? You notice he just says, go and do it. He doesn't say how necessarily. But the book of Acts is the story of how they did it, right? The book of Acts picks up after Jesus has resurrected from the dead, and it kind of tells us what they did. And here's what they did. They took the story of the life of Jesus, and they told it. They told about his life, they told about his death, and they told about his resurrection. In fact, I want to suggest to you that they focused on his resurrection. And listen carefully, this is what you should be doing. This is what I should be doing. But more specifically, we want to say this is what you should be doing. You, you should, we should be doing what they did. The resurrection launched the mission, the directive, the plan of action. We're to make disciples and we're to do it by simply this, telling the story of Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's, that's how we make disciples. That's how they made disciples. They just simply told the story of Jesus. Here's Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Messiah died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12, and then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to the apostles and last of all, As to one born at the wrong time, he appeared to me. 
Now, I'm sorry that none of you happened to be there when Jesus rose from the dead. I'm sorry that you're not an eyewitness. I really, truly am sorry. I, I would have loved to have been an eyewitness, right? But if you have believed the eyewitness story, you are obligated to tell it to others. Remember when Thomas, who was an eyewitness to just about everything except the resurrection, remember when they said, we've seen him? And he said, I'm not going to believe until I see. And then, of course, Jesus appears to him and all. And, 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 and then Jesus says to him, after he falls on his face and claims Jesus as God, Jesus says to Thomas, you believe because you've seen. But blessed are going to be all of these people in the 21st century who have never seen. They're not eyewitnesses, but they're going to believe because of your eyewitness account. If you believe the eyewitness accounts of others, and you are a follower of Jesus, this is your mission. Now, there's two goals as we seek to make disciples. Notice them with me. The first one, this is from the Matthew account. The first one is that we help people identify with Jesus openly. Jesus says, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're to go and we're to have people, we're to help people follow Jesus to the point that they are willing to self-identify that they follow Jesus. And they're to do it through baptism. That's what Ethan did for us this morning. And I loved your testimony, Ethan. I really did. I appreciated so much what you had to say about how you were following Jesus. You couldn't remember a time not following him. That's many Christian children's story. I followed them because that was my dad's and mom's conviction. But there came a point where it became my conviction, Ethan said. Right? So that, that is a great, that's a great testimony. But we're to help people come to the place where they are willing to get in water. And they're willing to follow Jesus in baptism, self-identifying with them. But here's the second thing we do with disciples as we make them. We're to help them live their lives the way Jesus taught us to live. We're to help them live and be like Jesus. Verse 20, teaching them, Jesus says, to observe everything I have commanded you. Now, we're so afraid as evangelical Christians that somebody is going to accuse us of, of, of teaching that somehow God accepts us because we obey him. And I feel like we've almost dismissed the second part of disciple making. Jesus tells us, have people believe the story and, and identify with me and then teach them to live like me. The mission that we have, the assignment that we've been given is that we're to help people live their lives like Jesus modeled it and like he taught us to live it. Do you, do you know why Jesus wants us to teach people to live like he lived and like he taught us? Do you know why he wants us to do that? I think I do. Because, because when we live like Jesus and obey Jesus and follow Jesus, that's where the abundance of life is found. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. If you want abundance in your marriage, then live your life like Jesus wants you to live and stop worrying about everybody else. You be who you need to be following Jesus and you will find abundance in your life. Now, I believe when Jesus said, I've come that you might have abundant life, I think he's talking about quantity of life. 
I think he's saying, I'm coming that you might have eternal life. But I also think it's quality of life. Jesus wants us to have a quality of life that is abundant. And the way that you and I have abundant life is we follow his teachings. And we live like he lived. And we do what he told us to do. And we're just like him. We want to model his life. That's how we find quality of life. He came to make us better people. Ethan, didn't you say that in your testimony? That God has made you a better person? That's what, that's what he's come to do. He's come to make us a better person. And here's the deal. When I make disciples of people around me, community changes. And when community changes, culture changes. I've told you this story a bunch of times, so forgive me for telling it again. But I just, I couldn't think of a better story to, to, to illustrate this. I'm on a bus in Talakiaco or Oaxaca, Mexico, and I'm sitting on the very front because I speak Spanish and I want to practice Spanish. And the bus driver and I are engaged in this spiritual conversation. And he says to me, you guys are just above the border. But, you know, so much bribery down here and so much cheating. And, and, he, and he makes a moral statement. Why is America so different than Mexico when you're just a few miles north of us? And I'm telling you, it was, it was one of those revelatory moments. I felt like God spoke to me and God said, I said to him, it's because Jesus has changed our culture. Not because all Americans are Christians, but because the, the ethic and culture of Jesus has so affected our community. That's why our nation is different than yours in the areas that you're talking about. When we spread the kingdom of Jesus on earth, we are spreading his ethic. We are spreading his morality. We are spreading his way of life. And so when Jesus taught us to pray, remember he taught us to pray like this? He said, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I really believe that Jesus was teaching us to pray. Pray for the return of Jesus when the kingdom of heaven comes to the kingdom of earth. I think he's, he's telling us that. But I think he's also saying, pray this, that as the kingdom of heaven expands on the earth, may the will of God be done on the earth, even as it is in heaven. As we lead people to Jesus, our community changes. And what is the kingdom of God on earth? Do you know what it is? Here's what it is. Romans chapter 17. Therefore, verse 16. Therefore, do not let your good be slandered. For the kingdom of God is not in eating and drinking, but it is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Messiah in this way is acceptable to God and receives human approval. So then let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. The kingdom of God is... Listen, when we lead people to Jesus and the kingdom of God grows, here's what we're bringing to the world. Righteousness. We're bringing joy. We're bringing peace. Can you imagine if the kingdom of God could somehow permeate Europe and Russia and all that's going on over there. I mean, one day it will. The kingdom of God will cover the earth. What, what does Isaiah said? Like, this, like the waters fill the ocean. The kingdom of God is going to fill the earth. So the resurrection of Jesus leads us to these new beginnings. And so today, here's what I desire. I'm almost done. It's going to be a short message today. I, this is what I desire today. I want you to jump on these three roads. 
that began in the resurrection. I want you to jump on there with all your heart, with all your faith, with all your conviction. I want you to jump on these three roads that get initiated with the resurrection of Jesus. So first, live your life with a resolute hope. Live your life with this absolute conviction that one day God's going to raise you from the dead and give to you eternal life. That Jesus was the first fruits and we're the second fruits coming at his, at his return. Let that hope drive away all fear of death, all fear of, of just really fear of people, fear of man. Let it just drive fear out of our lives. When the fear begins to well up in us, because fear is an emotion, when fear begins to well up in us, man, remember, 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 God's going to raise me up one day and I'll live with him. And though they take my life, Though they take my life, I fear nothing because I have this resolute hope in my life. Live with hope that stirs up joy beyond measure. Live with hope that stirs up, gives, not stirs up, settles peace in your soul. It fill, be filled with faith and faithfulness because they go hand in glove. Live your life with resolute hope. Here's the second thing. Live your life with a staunch commitment to God's new people. Beloved, church isn't something we attend. It's who we are. It's who we are. We, we don't visit church on special Sundays. We don't even visit church every Sunday. You're not visiting here. You shouldn't be seeing it as, I'm going to go to church and visit church. And You know, we are the church. Here's what that means. We are the people of God. We are family. We're his family. I know everybody wants to say they're the family of God, but family of God is by faith. We are, we are the family of God. We love one another. We do life together. We encourage one another. We teach one another to live like Jesus. So when I'm doing it wrong, you pull me aside and in love, you say, Jimmy, got to work on this because this is how Jesus wants you to be. That, that's what we do with one another because we love one another. And you know what? We, 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 we love each other to the point that we accept those kind of rebukes. We serve one another. We care for each other. We protect each other. And it's not always easy because we don't always agree on how to do that, right? And so some of us think we do it this way. Some of us think we do it that way. So it's not easy. But this is why the Bible says that we're to be patient with one another. It's why it says that we're to, to forgive one another. Why? Because it's so easy to offend each other, right? But we don't offend each other because we're family. We don't allow ourselves to be offended. We allow ourselves to be corrected. We allow ourselves to respond uh, to correction. When somebody's wrong in their correction, we respond with graciousness back to their wrong correction. We, we don't judge one another. We accept each other with our differences. That's what family does. And that's who we are. And third, live life on mission to make disciples. I tell you, this, this really is at the heart of this talk this morning. The resurrection solidifies our hope and it establishes the church. But both of those are like a foundation for us taking this life-changing, culture-transforming mission of God that he's given to us and enacting it in the world. This is the heart of my talk this morning. The resurrection catapults every one of you to make disciples. Whether you're running Q-Daddies or not, you're, you're to make disciples. Whatever you do, 
That's what we're to be about as the people of God. We should be seeking to make disciples of our children and of our family and of our neighbors and our friends. You and I are under obligation to do this, to make disciples. Now I get it. Now listen to me, don't don't tune me up. I'm almost done. I get it. Lots of folks suppress the knowledge of the Creator. Romans chapter 1 says that. What's known of the Creator is visible to them in all creation. Romans 3 says God's implanted it in their heart, and yet they suppress that knowledge of their Creator. And no matter what we try to do, I mean, they're just, they're going to continue to suppress it. They're not going to care about the Creator. They don't want to seek Him. They don't want to know Him. And, and that's okay. I mean, when I say when that's okay, that's, I can't make anybody not suppress the truth that they're suppressing. I can't change anybody, all right? But with joy, I still try to tell them the story. I still try to tell them about Jesus and about how much he loves them. And if they don't want to follow, I don't get mad. And I don't keep hounding them. And I don't keep pressuring them. It's not my job. It's not my job. Yes, yes. Paul says, I want to persuade. So yes, we use persuasion as best we can. But, but I don't want to hound people. I don't want to just continually beat them over the head. That's not what God's called me to do. God's called me to love them and to never give up on them and to pray for them. And, and when God opens the door, to, to still speak into that door. But, but the resurrection begs us, begs us to tell the story of Jesus that we might make disciples. It compels us. Here's what Paul tells the Roman church in verse 14 of chapter 1. I am obligated both to, gen- both to Greeks and barbarians. I think he means they're the civilized and uncivilized Gentiles. Both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the good news to you also who are in Rome. I'm obligated, he says. I'm obligated. Do you feel obligated? Seriously, do you feel obligated to tell people about Jesus? Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. I mean, I'm I'm preaching hopefully to the family of God. So I'm asking you a question. Do you feel obligated? Paul said he felt obligated. I feel like I'm being, I've, I've searched my heart. I feel obligated. I feel obligated to tell people about Jesus at some, at some level. Why did Paul feel obligated? Look at what he says. It, two reasons. One is in his very next sentence to the church of Rome. He says, I feel obligated because I'm not ashamed of the good news because it is God's power to save everyone who believes. I, I feel obligated because this is, this is how God changes people's lives. This is how God redirects their life. This is how God changes culture. This is how God changes everything. It's the good news of the kingdom of God. He says, I feel obligated because of that. To the church at Corinth, he made this statement. He said, the love of Jesus compels him to tell the story. And you've heard me say this before. I do not know if the love of Jesus compelling him is Jesus' love for him or his love for Jesus. I'd say, hey, why not both? Why doesn't the love that Jesus has for you compel you and me to tell people about Jesus? Or why doesn't our love for Jesus compel us to tell other people about Jesus, right? Paul says, I'm under obligation. And he's under obligation because he believes it's the power of God and the love of God. Listen, we can't all start a Bible study at work to make disciples. And we can't all start a podcast to make disciples, 
And we can't all start a Bible study in our home to talk to our neighbors about Jesus. Or can we? Or can we? No, I don't, I don't really think God wants, and if you recognize it, those are three real things in our church family, or people are, what people are doing. So, I don't think that God's calling me to do everything that everybody else is doing, but we can all do something. And we all should do something. We all must do something. Mainly is that we should just talk to people about the resurrection of Jesus. In the book of Acts, this is, this is really insightful. I shared this on Good Friday night. But you know in the book of Acts, their focus is on the resurrection of Jesus and their preaching. I mean, it's, it's a given that the Son of God dies for us. And I'm not in any way, it's imperative, it's paramount, the, the death of God for us. How, what is that hymn we sing? How can it be that God should die for me, right? So I'm not minimizing that at all. But you read your book of Acts, and it is the resurrection that they focus on in their preaching. Why? I'm assuming because it is the resurrection that substantiates that Jesus died for us and paid for our death because he rose from the dead. We should preach, talk about, not preach like I'm preaching, Peyton, not preach like I'm preaching. I'm talking about use your thing down there at the, uh, where, where you work, you work for the state, you know, the state parks, right? Use your position in the state parks to talk about the resurrection, to talk to people about how Jesus died and rose again. And you say, what do you mean they don't want to listen? If they don't want to listen, that's fine. That's fine. You just be kind. You be gracious. I mean, push a little bit. Don't knock down the door with a sledgehammer. Just push a little bit. When you tell them about Jesus, that was the apostles' focus. It needs to be ours. What needs to happen this morning is this. The resurrection of Jesus needs to lead us to a resolute, resounding hope that leads us to love the church with every part of our being and love and love the church so much that we give ourselves for her even as Jesus gave himself for her and then thrust ourselves into our community thrust ourselves into our work community our neighborhoods and do our best to make disciples baptizing them in the name of the father son and spirit and teaching them to observe everything Jesus taught us by his life and by his words. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Be blessed.